building, your taxes, your truck, and your road to success in the trucking industry. This is Trucking Business and Beyond, the show that puts the money where it belongs, back in your pocket. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking. And today is the Power Hour. We'll take your calls and answer your questions about everything maintenance. Engines, performance, fuel mileage, upgrades, modifications, emissions, new technology, troubleshooting. You name it, we'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and call. We're going to get to the calls in a little bit. I've got the guys from Pittsburgh Power helping me out today. Bruce, John, Ethan, welcome back, guys. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having us. As always, it's a pleasure. Great to have you here. Ethan, John? Great to be here, Kevin. Good to be here. All right. What's, uh, What's up at Pittsburgh Power these days? Well, uh, I'm in the process of writing one of the articles today, and Ethan and I are co-writing it. And we're talking about tuning on ECMs. And we're talking about uh, a lot on the ISX There's and how many different timing parameters. Because we have two trucks in here right now that were victims of advanced timing. And as you know from reading my articles years ago, we always talked about, especially on the aluminum piston engines, you do not advance timing for horsepower. You retard timing. And it's the same on the newer electronic engines. And when you think about this, the ISX and other engines have three firings. They have a pre, a main, and a post. And I'll let Ethan explain what the three of those do. I know the post one is to quiet it down, to make it quieter. But each one has 15 different tables. So if you take 15 to the third power, that's 3,375 different timing configurations you can have. And so these tuners that aren't mechanics, that haven't had the chance to have factory training, they're not electrical engineers. They go in and they start advancing this stuff. Oh, yeah, the truck feels like it has more power. Sometimes the fuel mileage will improve a little bit. But within a year or two, you put a hole in a piston and you crack a head. Now, what happens is Mr. Owner-Operator forgets that this guy at a truck stop or ABC diesel shop went in and changed these parameters. So we're begging people, do not change the timing. I don't care if you change the flow of the fuel, but don't change the timing. So, Ethan, do you, do you want to talk about the pre? Yeah, the, the newer ISXs, the CM2250 and up, they're the ones with the uh, pre-pilot and post. Some of the older ones have like a pre. Um, but a lot of it is for emissions and noise control. And efficiency, um, you know, they find that the fuel efficiency is best if they can control exactly when the burn is going to take place. And, you know, Cummins and, you know, all the manufacturers, they spend millions of dollars researching exactly what will, you know, the best combination for the timing is. Um, something that most shops can't even come close to. Um, 
So the money they spent is well worth it. Uh, and again, what we're seeing now is somebody is taking, and this is more than one person doing this, everybody seems to be doing it, and they're making a timing table and copying and pasting it into every single one. Uh, some of these modes are meant for like high altitude, uh, at sea level, outside conditions, you know, hot or cold, and combinations of both. So, you know, making one table size fits all and advancing it across the board doesn't work and leads to the engine going into dangerous conditions that can, you know, cause a uh, piston failure or a head failure. Uh, or worse, as we were talking about in the article earlier when we were writing it there, the if you advance the timing far enough, the film strength of the oil gets overcome and the rod will actually hit the crank. And then you've got the bearing beating, getting beat away at. So if the timing's too far advanced and the cylinder pressure is too high, you can literally beat the bearing out of the uh, out of the, the piston there. Well, that doesn't sound good. Now we've seen it happen a few times. We have a an SDP Caterpillar in here right now that was rebuilt 11 months ago. We had somebody's program in, and we know who it is, but we're not going to say. And it drastically advanced the timing, and it cracked ahead in 11 months. On three and cylinders. The SDP Caterpillar was the 2008-2009 with the DPF along with the ACERT. This was the engine that took Caterpillar out of the engine business in the USA. You know, Bruce, it's interesting. I'm seeing a lot more and I'm hearing a lot more about these parking lot tuners. And, you know, you've got guys running around with a laptop and next to no knowledge, but they don't even have to get dirty. You know, plug in the computer, change a bunch of things. The guy feels all kinds of horsepower. And, and I've even seen where they're turning off the overrides to make some of this stuff work. Just really, really lousy work on some of these ECMs I've seen. You well, know, the Cummins mechanics. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, well, the Cummins they have the ability to calculate exhaust temp, and it's relatively accurate. We've tested it on our engine dyno to find out if it really does work. And if you override those safeties, so if, if it goes up to altitude and all of a sudden it gets into a condition where the exhaust temp gets too high, the ECM can cut itself back, preventing engine damage. If you override that safety. You give the ability to melt the turbo and other parts down. Yeah, scary stuff. You know, with mechanical, if somebody changes something on our truck, we can usually see it. You look at it, you see it. We have no clue what's going on in that ECM. Kevin, back back in the mechanical days with the aluminum pistons, when you gave an engine a lot of fuel, like on the big cam and small cam commons, all you did was change the button, change the spring, give it RPM, and give it a ton of power, and oh, it ran great, but not for a long time because the aluminum piston wasn't forgiving. These steel-top pistons are very strong. However, they can only take too much, and then they fail. And when they fail, it's usually around the same time the head's going to crack, and now you have a hole in a piston and a cracked head. So we just want people to beware. And when people want to plug into your ECM and start making changes, these people are not mechanics. They have never been to school. 
They don't have a dyno to work on. They are not mechanically inclined. However, they're computer techie people. But they should not be messing around with these extremely complex new style diesel engines. And that goes for all of them. I mean, we're talking about the ISX, but that's for all of them. They're all very complicated pieces of equipment today. Absolutely. Uh, anything else? I've got. Uh, I've got a one for you guys. Yes, I do. Oh, go then. Oh, you want to go first? Uh, I've got a. Uh, we'd mentioned the uh, Hylion thing on uh, the show a couple weeks ago, and I'd gotten a couple of emails and some messages uh, asking, you know, what it costs and so forth. And I don't even know that they're interested in the owner-operator market, but I sent the CEO an, an email last week asking if you'd be interested in talking to us about uh, possibly being a service center or installation facility or, or trying to bring their stuff to the o- to the owner-operator market, which, again, I, I'm not sure that they're even interested in, but I, I have a meeting there. He got right back to me pretty enthusiastically, and I have a meeting there at 4 o'clock this afternoon. So uh, next week I'll have some info on that uh, technology, and uh, we'll find out if it's going to be available to, to our market or not. Uh, so I'll have some some answers on that next week. Excellent. Well, that sounds exciting, um, John. I've got one for you. I know you're you've done a lot of research and testing on oils. And um, what's your take on AMS oil? It's a cult. <laughs> okay, <laughs> good. It's, uh, it's amazing how many things right you would, <laughs> you and I agree on. <laughs> with with Amway for me, so so you know it, it might be a wonderful product, but it's already tainted in my book for that reason. But um, yeah, I, I don't I don't have much opinion on it. I, I do know some people in motorsport who use it and don't have a problem with it, so I, I've got no negative info uh, related to to Am's oil. Um, you know, from what I understand, that is a quality product, but I've not had the opportunity to work with it. Yeah, I will say this. Go ahead, Bruce. Forty years ago, Al Amatuzio, who was the inventor of it, I think he was a pilot in the Air Force, and the first synthetic lubricant was designed in Germany during World War II for the cannons, so they would recoil because it was so cold. And I think that's where Al Amatuzio came up with the first blueprint for synthetic oil but he was one of the first hold hold that thought we're going to come back we're going to talk about that right after this we'll also get to your calls and questions this is the power hour i'm kevin rutherford the guys from pittsburgh power are here we'll be right back
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. Bruce and Ethan and John are here with me. Right now we're talking about oil. John, I've said it that way so many times that it, I didn't never even got to the product, whether the product was any good or not. I just hated the way it was being sold. I hated the whole multi-level marketing. And most of it was because I can't count how many times I've been approached by somebody who sells Amsoil wants me to talk about their oil, their filter, you know, they corner me at truck shows. And the first thing I do is just start asking them questions. And, and this is the problem. You have all these people running around as Amsoil distributors that know nothing about oil. I'll ask them, can you explain to me the weights? What is five and 30? They don't know that. I'll ask them, you know, to look at an oil sample. They, they're clueless what they're looking at. I'll ask them to explain the difference, you know, why is synthetic oil different? They can, all they want to come back with is Amsoil is the only true synthetic. That's like their mantra. Um, so I, I, I've just never been a fan of the product for the same reasons you have. I, I've never tested it, don't even want to. But I had to, the reason I brought it up is I had an oil sample yesterday uh, on a DD-15. And the one thing I will say about DD-15s, they don't use oil. Their oil samples are really, really clean unless something goes really wrong. Um, and I, I can almost look at samples sometimes and tell you it's a DD-15. And I got one in, and it was awful. We had – now, see if you can figure this one out for me. We When he switched – from Rotella T6, a full synthetic, to Amsoil. The first sample came back with tin at 8, lead at 0, copper at 330, aluminum at 94, and chromium at 6. Those are horrible wear metals, but 0 cop- or zero lead. That I'm just totally confused about this. He, he he called me back then, and I said, look, get rid of the Amsoil. Let's go back to the um, Rotella just to see if that was the problem because it was the first sample on the Amsoil. And the numbers are all coming down. And I, I think they're still kind of high. The copper's still up at 145. Aluminum's still at 36. But they're about a third of what they were. And I think it's just that residual oil that you can't get out of there that's keeping the numbers up because they keep going lower. So I, I don't think there's any problem with this engine. I just have no idea how we could have gotten a sample like that. It, that seems really odd. It, usually lead comes first, right? That's the first layer on a Babbitt bearings, lead, I believe. Yeah, exactly. We so see... If it, if it, completely passed up the completely passed up the lead and went to copper but i guess you've got coolers there's an oil cooler on that thing well it could be an interesting maybe a chemical in the uh amsoil caused the cooler to leach a little bit or pulled some uh you know if it's if it's somewhat acidic it'll pull some copper off yeah. of the uh cooling element yeah and that was my thought so, so the copper yeah, the copper without yeah. the lead didn't really worry me. I thought maybe it is a cooler, and I thought maybe it was the chemical composition of the M's oil that caused that, although sometimes they just do it spontaneously the co- the coolers just start leaching copper, and it's usually not a problem, but 
tin at 8 and aluminum at 94 and chromium at 6, those are all really high numbers. We, are, we very seldom see those wear metals at all. Yeah, Bruce, what are your thoughts on that? That's uh, you, you both have way more experience with uh, oil analysis than I. I started with oil analysis in 1979 and 80, and I have never heard of aluminum being that high. So I'm a little shocked, and I almost don't have an answer. It seems like something attacked the thrust washers in the crankshaft is what I'm thinking. Yeah, I didn't have an answer for him. Got that high. Yeah, I, I, and I, I don't know on the on the DD fifteen if it has aluminum or copper thrust washers. I have a feeling they're aluminum, and maybe, I mean, maybe there's an additive in Amsoil to put it that high. I I was totally confused because normally. Before you ever see wear metals, you see some physical property that's gone wrong with the oil. You know, we have fuel dilution, we have really high soot, we have dirt, um, coolant, something that allows the the metals to be attacked. But I've got nothing. There's no fuel dilution. There's virtually no soot. The viscosity is good. It's not oxidized. And yet, and and we don't have lead. Which is just bizarre. Lead is almost the first wear metal we see. What is the silicon in the iron? Uh, the silicon has been four and five on all of these samples, which is okay. virtually nothing. Okay. The iron, um, when we had all the really high wear metal, metals, a couple oil samples back, the iron was 55. And then it dropped down to 30, and now it's back up to 43 again. So we are seeing some um, elevated iron, but not nearly like some of these other wear metals. Okay. Well, I would do the same thing that you suggest. Go back to regular oil, and let's see what happens, see if it stabilizes itself, and and then um, possibly try someone else's synthetic oil. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's we're back to Rotella, so and the numbers are getting better, but again I, I think it's just the residual oil that's keeping them they're still elevated, but they're only about a third of what they were two samples ago. And that's two uh rounds with the Rotella and the numbers keep coming down. So I said I I don't even know what to tell you. I don't know why it happened. I don't know why we're not seeing the lead. it's almost like since there aren't any physical properties that we can see, no dirt, no fuel, no coolant, and and the lead didn't get attacked, it's almost like it's some sort of a chemical reaction that's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then let me say one thing about multi-level marketing, because I've been involved in a few of them. And whenever you ask the founders, why did you go this way? And the reason is, if you come out with a new product, and you're not on your radio show or you don't have the opportunity to write for magazines and things. You're just an unknown. They say it takes today $10 million worth of advertising before people know your product. So a startup company can no way come up with $10 million. So whenever you set it up for multi-level marketing, you have all these people that are working trade shows and doing things that's doing the marketing for you. However, they do get a piece of the pie. And that, that is what started as far as that 
I know on the multi-level marketing was to bring it to market. Yeah, and, and you know, there's it does, some... It does... Go ahead. It does raise the price of the product slightly because so many people in line get a portion of that profit. But yeah. Some of the products are good. They're just expensive. Yeah, and, you know, there, there's clearly been successes. And, you know, we could even look at something like Avon, which was a huge success back then. Tupperware was kind of done this way with the parties. And, and I don't, you know, on some products, I don't really have a problem with it. I mean... If you want to sell me Tupperware, how much is there to know, uh, really? But when it comes to the more technical products and, and oil, especially oil and heavy trucks, a pretty technical product, you end up with people who know nothing about this, and, and all they do is just repeat, repeat the marketing claims that the company teaches them. That That's really my biggest problem. Right. All right. Hey, I have uh, some other news. Yep, go ahead. Look, we have picked the place. Sherman Zeman, retired owner-operator from Payson, Utah. I had him go up to the Horseshoe Lodge in Mount Pleasant, Utah. And I've ridden up there with him three times. It's a beautiful place to ride. It's a huge valley with mountains on both sides. Uh, not a whole lot of trees, so you can... Uh, you can ride the mountains and not worry about hitting rocks and trees. And we are going to meet there the last weekend in January. I don't have any prices yet, but I can tell you it's a it's a phenomenal place. And it's just south. If you go out of, wish I had my map with me. If you go out of Springville, Utah, and go south towards Price. There's a turnoff that brings you down to Mount Pleasant. And the name of the lodge is Horseshoe Lodge. Next week I'll have some figures on what the rooms are going to cost, and we'll go from there. But it's the last weekend in January. Got it. I'll. Uh... Oh, hey, hey, here's something else, Kevin. Here's something else. There's a up in Ogden, Utah, there is a Polaris Skidoo dealer. They are going to come. They're big into turbocharging. They're going to bring some demo sleds, Polaris and Skidoo. And one Polaris and one Skidoo will both be turbocharged. And these things go zero to 60 in two seconds. Every owner-operator is going to get to sit on this thing, roll into that throttle, and see what acceleration is like. That sounds like fun. I've got to get to a break. We're going to come back and get right to your calls and questions. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. We're going to get right to your calls and questions. Bruce and John and Ethan are here with me. We're going to start off in Texas. Cheryl, welcome to the program. Thanks, Kevin. Hey, guys. I have an update and a question for you today. Um, if you recall, we spoke last month. I've got the 99 Volvo with the N14 red top that had clean oil samples, but was going through a gallon 2,000, every 2,000 miles and blowing the filler cap off. And uh, to get in, they pulled the manifold off, fired it up. The front two cylinders were very wet. So a new cylinder, I mean, a new head, and 6,000 miles later, no oil consumption. So yay. (laughs) And uh, go ahead. That's the beauty of the end. You said you had an N14, correct? Yes, sir. That's the beauty of it. You only have to remove one head. There's no overhead cam to deal with, and it's a, a much more economical process to remove an oil pan, one head, and do the cylinder kit. I was loving my N14 on that one. So fast forward a couple of weeks. Um, I'm back in the shop, and the engine's opened up. They, uh, I lost the number five injector, um, and then they, I uh, had a fuel leak between the first head and the center head. So they, if I, and I'm kind of parroting what they said, they had to take the rocker box off in order to fix the fuel leak and the crossover lines. So while they were in there, I said, look, you've already got it open. Um, it's due for an overhead. So they ran the overhead, replaced the injector, fixed the fuel leak at those crossover lines. And now I have no jig brake. Um, and I'm going to plead ignorance here, but I'm imagining that somewhere in there they had to disconnect them and then fail to connect them back up before they button the engine up. That is correct. There's a, a wire that has to be plugged on to the Jake Brake solenoid. Okay. And that would be inside. So I need to get back in and have them open it up again and reconnect that. Nah. And I looked around on the outside and I couldn't see anything, but maybe... Is it on the outside? Wait a second. The wire is plugged on on the outside. There is a connection at the solenoid. Why don't you pull the valve covers off, call me, and I'll talk you through it. Okay. I will look at doing that uh, when I'm on the flip side of this load, so later on in the week. Okay. That would be helpful. Thank you, Bruce. I'm on a dedicated run now, so getting in there is hard. I have a suggestion for you, uh, and this is for all all engines that are from back in the 90s. Back in the 90s is when the government took the aromatics out of diesel fuel for the first time. So we lost a lot of lubricity. That's whenever they, what they called low sulfur fuel. Well, when you think of, when you think if you have a 95 or a 97, those engines, Cummins Cat, Detroit, Mack, they were all designed to run on high sulfur fuel. And now we take the lubricity out. And that's why we need to use Lucas fuel conditioner to put the lubricity back in. So they turned around and they've done it twice. And now this emissions testing we're underway with right now in this California diesel fuel, not only is there no color, there's no smell to it. 
So you can imagine that how dry this fuel must be. Forrest Lucas even told me that gasoline is very dry today, and we should be using the same fuel conditioner in all of our gasoline engines. But really, really, people, like I had a guy with a 3406E cat about three weeks ago call me, and he's having all kind of injector problems. I said, try Lucas. Put Lucas in it for two weeks, and it worked perfect. So he quit using it for a week. His problem came back. And I know the N14 suffers from it. So, And people say, okay. well, it's too expensive to buy. If you buy a 55-gallon drum and you put a pump on it and you just pump it into a couple-gallon jugs, and if you get home enough and you can keep this 55-gallon drum at home, it cuts the cost of Lucas in about half. So okay. that's the economical way to save your injectors. Thank you for that. Thank You're you. Quite okay, welcome. I will. I will. Uh, I will grab some here on the road and then look at get some more economically. So I, I got to finish paying for this all this engine work before I start replacing any more injectors. <laughs> so okay, well, thanks, guys. You're welcome. Okay, so Lucas fuel conditioner. Got it. Yes. Thank you for your upper, time and thank you for all you guys do. Oh, sorry. Upper. Upper cylinder lubricant, it's called. All right. We're off to Maryland this time. Steve, welcome to the program. Hey, how you doing? Uh, Bruce, I had a question for you. I'm looking to buy a glider with a uh, 600 signature series Cummings. Uh, what can you tell me about that motor versus the uh, N14? Oh, I'd buy that in a heartbeat. So it's the pre-EGR sig- Signature 600? Yeah, it's a reman from Cummings, yes. Oh, yeah. I can tell you that the uh, ECM has 6,400 parameters to it. That's more than the space shuttle had. But it's uh, only a third of the parameters that the new ISXs have. It's a very high-tech engine. has a very good jake brake to it. Uh, I'd buy that. I, I would buy that in a heartbeat. What about the that N14? Is, what, I'm uh, sorry, go I, ahead. The, the N14 is a little harder to get the horsepower out of. The N14 is a great engine. Uh, it works very well at the five and a quarter to 575, maybe 600 horsepower. But they have a... Ethan, what was that spill valve you were telling me about in the injector? Uh, I, uh, I believe it's called a TVO valve. And if you hold it open too long, it actually makes the horsepower go the other way because it'll pump the fuel back into the fuel rail when the cam pushes down on the injector. So that's the negative part of the N14 for those of us that really love a lot of horsepower. Right. Other than that, the N14 does not have any negatives. Just the horsepower rating that we can get out of it. But you would choose the ISX 600 over the N14? Right. And, and as I recall, when that ISX was being tested at the, in Columbus, Indiana, I know in a dyno they were running those constantly at 800 horsepower just to see the durability of it. Just make sure that you have plenty uh, a good cooling system because it does not like to be overheated. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. Enjoy the show. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. All right. Thanks for the call. We're going to 
get into another call here before the break. We're off to Missouri. Chris, welcome to the program. Oh, hello, guys. Yeah, I think I I think I might have a blown head gasket, but I called into your shop, and I was uh, Eric told me that I should try to isolate my my air compressor before I tore the head off. And uh, it's a Series six sixty. I'm wondering how uh, to go about doing that. How to isolate the air compressor? Well, he yes, probably, uh, he. he what what are your symptoms? Well, I'm getting an air bubble into my overflow on my on my uh, on my uh, coolant reservoir. Uh, that's about the only symptom that I really have. Uh, you have no chirp right that, now under a pool. Like if you're at like 25 pounds of turbo boost, there's no chirp. No. No. And I actually, I called in. Okay, go ahead. You're getting some pressure in the radiator. Yes, and I I can see air bubbles coming up from the from the bottom when the engine's running. I mean, it's it's not it's not severe, but I it's enough that I had to loosen the radiator cap. Yeah. Well, how would you isolate it, being its pressure coming into the coolant system to see if it's in the head of the air compressor or if it's yeah, actually your head gasket what... or your head? How, how would you do that? Um, I've seen them in the shop, don't quote me word for word here. They drain the coolant, and then they'll disconnect the coolant lines to the air compressor and plug both ends, and then refill the engine full of coolant and run it the bubble test again. Hmm. There you go. Okay. You have to make some so settings. plug plug the uh the coolant lines to the AC com- or the air compressor and just get yeah, through it that so way. Not gonna, okay. You're not gonna run the engine long though because you don't have coolant going into the compressor. Exactly. But for the oh. brief test it would it won't hurt anything. Okay. All right. Uh huh. There you go. Okay. All right. I'm gonna draw I'm gonna All right, we've got to get to a break. We're going to come right back, get to more of your calls and questions right after this. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. We're down to the final segment. We're going to get right back to the phone calls. We are off to Missouri. Jeffrey, welcome to the program. 
Thank you, Kevin. How are you today? Doing great. What's on your mind? Okay, I've got a 1999 Freightliner Century. It's got an N14 with a uh, select, N14 select. The truck has been completely restored. I've got a oil sample there. Yeah, so uh, I don't have any mileages on here. How many how many miles are on the engine itself since uh, the last in-frame? Okay, since the outer frame, I've got 26,882 miles on that engine, and uh, that oil was uh, changed with 118,000 miles on it. And uh, I think wait. the other numbers are on the uh, wait, wait. On the, on the uh, report there. Wait a minute. I'm a little confused. You've got 26,000 miles on an outer frame? Yes, this is one outer frame. Okay, but only 26,000 miles. So that was really recent. But did you just say the oil was changed at 100 and some thousand? Yeah, so then I had an oil change at 118,000 miles. That's that, was the, that was the mileage on the engine, that, on the oil. Well, wait a minute. Because how can there only be 26,000 miles on an auto frame, but 118,000 miles on the oil? That's the oil change. That was the interval that the oil was changed at. When I took the oil sample, I took it at 118,000 miles when the, but uh, when I, the oil changed. I, Currently on the engine, right now, I have 126,000. Okay, so here's where I'm confused. We do an out-of-frame. Obviously, okay. there's no oil in the engine. You're telling me we're only 26,000 miles away from the out-of-frame. How can there be 118,000 miles on the oil? I've changed the oil four times. This is the fourth oil change on, the, uh, on this out-of-frame. John, Bruce, am I, am I just missing something? I'm... Maybe I'm not explaining it right. No, I'm a little con- I'm a little confused too. Whenever you rebuilt the engine twenty six thousand miles ago, you put brand new oil in it, correct? Yes, that is correct. And so you've done four oil changes. So that is there a hundred? Is there a hundred and twenty six thousand on the engine, or twenty six thousand? No, one hundred and twenty six thousand on the outer frame. Today. Okay. All right, that okay. that makes more right. sense. So, and in that hundred and twenty-six thousand, you've done four oil changes. This last one looks like there was about thirty thousand miles on the oil. Is that correct? That is correct. Kevin. Okay. All right. Now I can address the um, the results because there's a lot to talk about here. The soot on this engine is really high. Um, this is an N14, Bruce, um, normally pretty clean burning. And the last four of those samples, so we're roughly twenty-five or 30,000 miles each, um, the soot started at 1.1. The last one was 1.7. The most current is 2.3. That That's a lot of soot for an N14. Something's something's not burning clean in this engine, but we also have lots of wear metals going on. Um, If we just look at the most recent sample with 30,000 miles on the oil, 
We've got tin at five, lead at 121, copper at 18, and iron at 97. We're, we're seeing lots of wear on this engine. Do you have a bypass filter on this engine? No, I do not. Not as of yet. Okay. And are you running off-road? Are you in a lot of dust? No, I just do the lower 48. I pull a reefer. Uh, Bruce Silicon's down to four. I mean, it was 14 right after the out of frame, which we expect. You always see high silicon, but it, it's down to four. It's been six, six, and four the last three samples where other than the soot we don't have any real contaminant in here and soot at 2.3 shouldn't cause that kind of wear all right next question when you put this engine back in the truck and you put the new oil in it when did you do your first oil change how many miles i think the first oil change was at five thousand miles okay that's not too bad. We we want people to change oil between one and two thousand, and the reason is is you got a lot of break in and any dust or dirt that accumulated during the rebuild, uh, you want to wash that out. But if you did it at five thousand, wow! I think you better get in here and let's get some bypass filtration on there and do some premature oil changes like at 10,000 miles just to clean this up and see if you lower those wear metals. If not, we better drop the pan and see what's going on inside there. Okay, when this engine was remanufactured, we did the, we did everything from the uh, from the radiator all the way back to the rear end. So I'm talking about the particular truck here. Did the uh, Pittsburgh Power uh, crankshaft damper and to transmit everything's been restored on the truck uh, i was going to start doing that work as soon as i got these oil samples normal but uh, i don't know where to go right now just got all these repairs paid for and, uh, <laughs> trying to see which direction i need to go so you suggest uh change the oil again get the bypass I, I, filter installed and yes. then start retesting at shorter intervals, say at 10,000 miles? I, I think the next two oil changes should be at 10,000. I agree. Okay, I'm about at that right about now. And uh, one additional question. When this engine was remanufactured, well, it was a company that claimed to remanufacture the engines. They had to replace the crankshaft and do a uh, a line bore on the, uh, on the engine, on the block itself. Sure. Sure, I understand so, that. You, okay, you think that may have something to do with uh, these high wear metals that they didn't do it correctly? Nope. Or, nope? nope. Okay. I, hey. I think something got in there and is attacking something. Okay. Hey, hey Bruce, okay. with... with well. With lead at 121, which is level four, and copper climbing, do you think we should look at those bearings? I would. Yeah. So I said, let's pull the pan down, look at the thrust washers, and look at the rod and main bearings, and look up at the cylinder walls, uh, get the OPS on there, and and go from there, and maybe even uh, the spinner, too, because there's there's something wrong somewhere. And something's getting into that. And if he's just running a reefer across the highway, uh, wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. Here, here's the beauty of oil analysis. You know, a $50 oil sample could have just saved a $30,000 engine because if you weren't sampling this, you'd have no idea. And this thing would have, would have been wiped out pretty quick. Yes. All right. Let's, uh, let's get to another call. Uh, you know what, guys? Anything you want to close with? We've only got about two minutes, and I don't see any calls on the board that I could really do justice to in two minutes. Um, I, I'll jump in and say that is the really, really good reason to be doing an oil sample. There's lots of good reasons to sample, but here's one. Um, an out-of-frame, that's got to be an expensive engine, and no outward appearances that anything's wrong, but we're already looking at some bearings that are probably compromised here. And I have one other thing. You know, we're all self-employed. Everybody on listening is an owner-operator. I'm an owner-operator operating in the own, my own business. And it's very important that we're able to contact people and today I've called two owner operators and they don't have a voicemail set up. They didn't answer their phone. I've called each of them twice and they've called me asking questions. And how many times I call back three times. I give it three times and then they'll call back a week later. So nobody's returning my call. And I really need people to have their voicemail working and not have it be full. Some guys have a voicemail and sometimes it's full. It's important that we're able to get in touch with you when you have questions. I, I agree, Bruce. We deal with the, uh, the same thing here. We are, I, I am a stickler for uh, my employees returning calls, calling people back. Um, we know we deal with you know, owner-operators and drivers that are on screwy schedules, so it, we do everything we can to reach out and make sure we're staying in contact with people. And, you know, you're right. If you can't leave a voicemail, we're going to uh, have to get out of here. We'll do it again real soon. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Power Hour. Thanks to Bruce and John and Ethan from Pittsburgh Power. Remember, be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. I'm Kevin Rutherford. start a second hour here so if you want to jump in press one on your phone we'll get to as many calls as we can here we go your money your taxes your truck and your road to success in the trucking industry this is trucking business and beyond the show that puts the money where it belongs back in your pocket Welcome to my world. 
I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking, and today is the Power Hour. I've got the guys from Pittsburgh Power, Bruce and John and Ethan, with me doing the heavy lifting. We're going to get to your calls. We can take your calls and answer your questions about everything maintenance, engines, performance, fuel mileage, horsepower, emissions, electronics, troubleshooting, new technology, you name it, we'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and call. I'm going to bring in the guys from Pittsburgh Power. Hey, guys, welcome back. How's it going, Kevin? Good. Good. So uh, the the last show right at the very end, we had actually a couple uh, examples on the last show of really good reasons why we should be doing oil analysis. It's so inexpensive for, you know, 50 bucks or so. Um, you can pull a sample, it's easy to do, and the amount of information we can learn about an engine, how well it's performing, is it tuned right, are there any mechanical problems, and then is it the oil protecting the engine the way it should? And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure you guys have heard all the old wives' tales over the years, the smell the oil, rub it between your fingers, rub it on your forehead, taste it, I don't know. Um, none of those things work. A true oil analysis is is really what we should be doing. But we had a, a couple of great examples of engines that, had they not been sampling, probably would have wiped out an engine before long. Um, lots of wear metals for no apparent reason. But um, now that we know, we can start looking for those reasons. So if, if you're not sampling... I would highly recommend that you start a good sample program. And I think it's even more important now with with the new technologies, the bypass filters, um, better quality parts where where trucks aren't using as much oil as they used to. All of those things, and and again, the, the long drains that we're doing now, which are good because they save money. It's just really important to watch what's going on in that oil. What do you guys think? Well, I see it as a uh, a cheap insurance policy because you know new engines thirty five to forty thousand dollars and an oil sample is what do you say fifty? Yeah, roughly. Yeah, for a good one. I, oh, yeah, so that's a pretty cheap insurance. Yeah. yeah, let me let me say real quick because uh, I hate to bash these companies, but I have to. Um, the bench top oil analysis is a total waste of time. I don't care if they give it to you free; it's not worth doing. Because we can't trust the information. Those benchtop units aren't very sophisticated. The people running them aren't well-trained. We don't know their cleaning procedures. I've seen many, many false positives from those machines and also not picking up something that should have been picked up. So people call me all the time and they say, hey, I have this oil sample and it says this. And I'll say, well, where did you get it? And It'll come from one of the quick lube places, and it was done right on the spot. And I'll say, just throw it away. Don't even tell me because I don't want to know the results because I can't do anything with them. If they say that you have high fuel dilution, I'm not going to send you to a shop to start looking for it because it could be wrong, and I'm just wasting your money. If it says there's no fuel dilution, I can't trust that either. So make sure you're using a good quality lab and and not the bench top instant result kind of services. 
Kevin? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. I sound like I was muted. When we got involved with oil analysis in 1979, Kendall Oil out of Bradford, Pennsylvania, did it for free if you use their oil. And I'm trying to think of the, I think it was SpectraCheck out of Cleveland was $8 for an oil analysis. Now, how much is Polaris Labs now? Did you say 50 Uh You know what? Let me go check to make sure I'm not thinking of the kit that we sell, which is a sample and a filter. Uh, let me go look real quick. I know they, they have gone up in the last couple of years. Our sample kits, yeah, our sample kit is $47. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, now that includes, uh, you know, the UPS mailers, so you don't have to pay any postage, and they get there pretty quick. But uh, it, it seems like when I first started with OPS, which would have been back in early 2000, it was less than $30 for a sample kit. So they have gone up quite a bit, but it's still in my book. It's, uh, you know, a, a very well spent $50. So if you're going to change oil in your car and it's going to cost you $27, it's cheaper just to change the oil as opposed to sampling five quarts. Yes. And sending it in. Yes, I agree. I, I would back. Back when Kendall did it for free, we were sampling everything. And remember, you had a Mastercraft ski boat with a 351 Ford in it? I did. You're right. And you remember the flame arrester? There was no air filter? Yes, that's right. Well, in 15 hours, you were running at 25 parts per million on silicon. Wow. 15 hours. Yeah, see, I didn't so I know any of this Pleasure back Craft. then. I called Pleasurecraft Marine, and I asked them, I said, why no air filters on boats? And the engineer said, well, there's no dirt above water. I said, have you ever done an oil analysis? This was back in, like, right, 1986. And he said, what's an oil analysis? <laughs> well, I figured there's no sense in taking this any further with that engineer at, at right. Pleasure Craft Marine. So we bought Amsoil air filters, which were foam, and we would wrap them around the flame arrester and then sew them and then put the oil on them. And that's what we did. So that's how we determined a 15-hour oil change on a ski boat. Yeah, I didn't know that back then, and when I first saw that there was no air cleaner, I thought, well, they must know what they're doing, and, you know, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of dirt around water, but clearly there is. Yeah. You were you were assuming, right? I was assuming. That's right. We know how dangerous that is. <laughs> I, I, I was assuming okay. they, they knew huh. what they were doing. Oh, that's like some mechanics will say, that bypass oil filter or that foam air filter was that good, it would come from the factory. No, that's not true. That's one of my pet peeves. Uh, that is so not true. I, I, why do they think there is such a thriving aftermarket parts um, system for both cars and trucks? Because there, there right. is no way they're building the best vehicle they could possibly build. Every, almost every component on that truck could be improved on. 
We had a gentleman in here that's very mechanically inclined. He rebuilt us 379 Petey's from El Paso, Texas. And Ethan, do you recall what, did we do anything else other than two fleet air filters? And I called him the next day and I said, can you feel and hear a difference? He said, I'm shocked at how well I can hear the turbo and how much freer the engine is running. And then we had a Western Star in here with a 3406E cat, and we had to replace the radiator. And he put one of our full-tilt Pittsburgh Power ported and ceramic-coated manifolds on and the turbo. And there was a driver on this truck, so we did not give it any more power. But the manifold and turbo alone will let it run about 80 more horsepower. I called him the next day. He says, I'm shocked at how much better this truck is running just with the manifold and turbo. Well, you so, know, again, those are two really good examples, Bruce. Let's think about some of the things that are on a truck where the technology hasn't changed in decades. I mean, think about paper air filters. How long have those been around? I, with everything we've learned and, and everything we know and all the new technology and they're still putting paper air filters in, we know why foam, oiled foam, is so much better, but that's a change the OEMs aren't going to make. Battery technology has gotten so much better, yet we still use plain old lead-acid batteries all the time. So many examples. Here's another one. On that manifold, how many hours does it take to create that? There's eight hours until you get your mold right. But if you take a stock manifold and you go grinding on it and you put it on the flow bench, you have eight hours invested to bring the flow up 20% more. That's why we cast our own and start out with it larger and then just have to clean up the casting marks. And there's exactly why the, the OEMs aren't going to produce a truck with a polished manifold because of the time and expense of trying to do it. It doesn't mean for us that it's not worth it. It absolutely is. That's why we talk about these things. But many, I won't say all, but many of the uh, big improvements on vehicles have come from the aftermarket, including turbochargers, I believe. We uh, will be right back. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. Bruce and Ethan and John from Pittsburgh Power here with me. We're going to get to some phone calls. We're off to Tennessee. Lewis, welcome to the program. Yes, thank you for taking my call. I was calling to ask the fellows at uh, Pittsburgh Power a question whether to 
uh, ECM tune a Detroit 60 series or put a power box on it. I have a uh, 2017 579 glider uh, with the Detroit in it. It's, uh, it's getting eight miles to the gallon right now. But uh, I uh, I had a older truck before that was tuned through y- you all, and I love that truck. So uh, I was just calling to see whether to tune the ECM or to do the power box. Okay, with with the power box, you have the nine different power settings, and you can turn it off, you can turn it up, and you can select your horsepower. Now, the power box has to take the signal from the ECM. So my suggestion would be, if you can get by here, let's make sure the ECM is doing what it's supposed to be doing and make sure everything is right on it. And then if you want to, add the power box. But first, let's make the ECM right. All right. There are some mass tuners. There's some mass tuners that are tuning these ECMs. It's very cheap. And how much time are they actually spending on them? I don't know. I know who they are, and I know where they are, and I know what they're charging, the the, uh, glider builders. So I'm always leery of their work. All righty. Thank you for taking my call. I will get in as soon as possible. Like I said, I had a uh, 06 before 06 uh, Cummins IHX, and I love the tune on it. And uh, okay. now I have this glider. It's doing well on fuel mileage, but like I said, it's, it's, it ain't putting out but 22 uh, pounds of boost. So, oh, my, 22. 22 pound of boost, that means your foot's into the throttle quite often. Right, exactly. All right, let me give you an example. Let's go back to the days of the big cam. 18 pounds of boost was 350 horsepower. 24 pounds was 400. And then on the N14s, 28 was 460. 30 was 500. And 32 was five and a quarter. On the big cam 4s, I'm, I'm sorry, the uh, D-Deck 4s, they're supposed to make 30 pounds of boost for 500 horsepower. If you're at 22, take 500 divided by 30 times 22, and that'll tell you where you are horsepower-wise, and it's going to be somewhere like 410, 420. Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> That's right. So so in, in, you had just answered your question. We have to make the ECM right before... We put a power box on this truck. Bruce, that's uh, three, 366 horsepower. Oh, you did the math? 366? I did. Yeah. 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 The that... downhill truck, huh? Or a dead level truck. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. We, but the good news is you guys can fix that. So let's go north of the border yeah. this time. Dilbach, welcome to the program. Uh, hi, Kevin. How are you doing? Good. What's on your mind today? Uh, can you check the oil analysis, please? I can, and it's going to be an easy one because there's uh, virtually nothing to talk about. We, um, oh, okay. No fuel dilution, no soot, viscosity's perfect, base is holding up really well, and we have virtually no wear metal. So, 
Bruce, John, Ethan, the last couple samples we went over on those, uh, you know, on the last show, and we had those high numbers. If I look at the, the typical wear metals here, zero lead, zero tin, one copper, four aluminum, zero nickel, zero chromium, and four on iron. That's with 27,000 miles on the oil. And is this correct? Over a million on the engine? Right, yep. Wow. What engine is it? This is a pack car. It's a MX-10. Pack car. MX-10? MX-10. Whose bypass oil filter do you have? I don't have an oil bypass, but I do get oil analysis every um, 25, 26,000 miles. Wow. Wow. Yeah, this is. I'm very impressed. This is a great looking oil sample. How can you have four on the iron with that kind of miles? Four and no bypass oil filter. No. I've never seen one that low. And the last one we looked at, which was clearly a problem, had about the same number of miles on the oil, but the iron was at 94, not four. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, good, good looking stuff. Yeah. Nothing to worry about on this engine. Okay, hey, and I have a, I have a question for John. John, uh, John do, they ha- do they have? Go ahead. Did Pittsburgh Power have any tuning on this uh, engine? The answer is no, not yet. We're working on it. Okay. So- but we don't have that. And by the way, John oh. had to step away. John can't be on the show right now. The that one company, I think they rebuild uh, EGR, EGR valve? valves. Yeah. They're the they're the number one builder in the country. They came here to visit us and see our facility, and so John's giving them the tour right now. So that's why I'm on the headset along with Ethan. Normally, I'm on my cell phone. Gotcha. All right, let's get back to some calls. Let's go to Pennsylvania. Brian, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Um, Bruce, do you know offhand the the boost of horsepower on a C12? Oh, I do not. If I had to take a guess. I would say it's probably about 16 horsepower per pound of boost. Okay. And I'll tell you, the Um, ISC Cummins, the 8.3, was 15 to 1. The 12.7 Detroits are about 16.8 to 1. The NTC Cummins were about 16.6 to 1. So it has to be close by there. I can okay. tell you the C, the C12 with our manifold and turbo on and some programming, or and or the power box is a a great great running engine. It it's on it's on my Christmas list and I'm going away so that kind of frees the truck up. But I just I'm a little nervous. I got like 750 on it and there's some blow by, but I don't think it's excessive. I got. I got 9,000 miles out of the first gallon, but I only got five out of the second since my last change. So, so did, kind of did you change the oil? Did you yeah, change I the just oil? had, 
No, not yet. I'm I'm going to do a sample here soon. No, don't sample. Just change it. If you put a gallon in and only went five thousand, just change it. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, that that wasn't. I was actually calling about my transmission. Okay, go ahead. Um, Let me say one other thing. Let me say one other sure. thing about that C12. That C12 is almost identical to a C15. If you set the block, if you have two blocks sitting side by side, you can hardly tell them apart. So I wouldn't be afraid to give that engine some power because sometimes when you do that and you do the manifold and turbo and you let it breathe and you put the fleet air filter on it and the OPS bypass filter and set the ECM up, the engine runs free. A lot of times the blow-by will dissipate or decrease. I have one of them out there running at 580 wheel horsepower when he turns the box on. And he's had only one issue, but that was because the overhead was never set during the life of the engine. On a C12. On a C12. 529 to the ground. So divide that by 0.85, that'll tell you the flywheel horsepower. Right. Can I ask you a question about the manifold? I got it's a 2KS, and it's in a it's in a little FLD, the 112. Um, is it the the numbers don't match up for the full tilt manifold? But do you think it might fit anyway? I mean, they told me it's the same on the block end. It's just I guess it might have a different pitch or you know for where the turbo mounts. Yeah, the problem is they move the turbo up to Freightliner. A lot of times will move the turbo up in front of number three cylinder instead of in front of number four whenever you have a hood like that. Why don't you give me a call after the show and give me some numbers and let me do a little research. Okay. All right, we've got to get to a break. We'll be right back with more stuff. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. We're going to get right back to some phone calls. We are off to Virginia. JR, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. What's on your mind um, today? 
I'm having a little bit of issue with my 2011 uh, ISX. It's a single overhead cam motor. Um, the jake brake on this thing has never been that great. Um, I just recently done an overhead on it, and I thought it would get stronger, but it's not. And I don't understand what to do or, or what can be done. Are you are you dealing with a Cummins distributor or dealer in in Virginia? No, no. Um, I done it myself with myself and a, uh, another diesel mechanic friend. Um, and we followed the the instructions on you know on the procedure, and the valve cover had the valve lash and um, everything on it for the even the Jake brake. But uh, the Jake brake is not very strong at all, and I don't know what I can do. Well, you see, Jake brakes have spools, they have solenoids, and if they aren't working properly, then you're not going to have full Jake. I think you ought to take it into Cummins, talk to the service manager, and explain what you've done to it, and listen to what he tells you. Or do you get up near us? No, I don't run over that way. I wish I did. Okay. The only cl One. the closest shop that I've got that's, that's closest to me is um, the one up there in KC. One test you can do, um, just like on an old mechanical big cam, on the ISX there's a, a Jake plug on the side of the head. You can pull that out, and if you touch, there's two pins in there because there's two solenoids underneath of the valve cover. To see if they're functioning properly, what I've done in the past is, because I've seen them work, but they don't actually work. I start the engine and let it idle, and then I'll jump 12 volts to each one of those pins individually. And if the jake doesn't hit when you touch the 12 volts of that pin, that solenoid's bad. Okay, well, this has got a three-stage jake on it. And, um, you know, I can, I can hear it working, and I can feel it a little bit. It's just not very strong. It doesn't hold me back very well. Yeah, solenoids can wear out uh, where they start to vent the oil or don't vent the oil properly through the Jake housing. Okay. Um, well, this has got about 700,000 miles on it. Um, I didn't know that those wore out. Um, uh, the, the other question, uh, I'm sorry, go I'm, ahead. I'm going to ask Ethan, are there spools in the ISX brake like there is in the older big cams? I don't believe so, no. Okay. I have never okay, had an um, ISX break apart to tell you. I can say this, so years ago on the big cams, we would take them all apart, take the spools and the springs out, put new spools in, and generally reuse the solenoid, but put new O-rings on the solenoids and soak the Jake housings in solvent overnight and put little brushes through to clean the oil passageways out. And the kit at the time was $110 to rebuild a set of jakes. And what an amazing difference it was when we were finished with them. Okay. All right. Um, one more question. Oh, sorry about that, JR. I'll bring you back on. Go ahead. Okay. Um, one more question. I've... Trying to find out, um, with this being an emissions engine, um, what type of upgrades can I do to this motor? 
oh, we can increase the horsepower and efficiency of it. We can actually even take a look at that Jake and try to make it come on a little harder in its third stage, being that it uses the, the turbo for that one. Uh, with that, you'll notice you know a difference there, but uh, you also got to make sure the rest of the Jake components are working. And it almost sounds like there's an issue because normally most people love the Jakes on the ISX. But I think I well, think I, this truck. I, I used to have an 07 that uh, the Jake brakes would would almost stand you on your nose if you had them on full, and you were exactly. you know like going down a mountain with in ninth gear. I mean, th those things would just stand you on your nose. Where this one. I might as well not even turn it on because it barely works. Well, I think we ought to, you ought to get that up here, even if you have to deadhead. Let's do an emissions tune-up and work on those jakes and find out why it's not working properly. And like Ethan said, it could be a combination of how far is the variable geometry turbo closing to give you the jaking power. So you, you could have not only an issue in the jakes, it could be in the electronic control module, or it could be in the variable geometry turbo. All right. We're going to get to another call. We're off to Indiana. Daniel, welcome to the program. How y'all doing today? Good. What's on your mind? Well, speaking of variable geometry turbo, I have got a 99-year model Detroit Series 60 and a Freightliner Cascadia glider kit. And at the 300,000 mark is what I'm making a lot of plans for. And I'm real interested in the idea of that variable geometry turbo for the 12.7. And I'm just wondering, right now it's set to 500 horsepower with the waste-gated turbo. What kind of power level would I be at uh, to be somewhat similar um, to that, and is there anything special that I got to do to make that work? Yeah, you just have to bring the truck here. We have all the parts in the stock. We know how to set everything. We can bring you 600 horsepower at, was that 1,100 or 1,200, Ethan? 1,200. At 1,200 RPM. So right now your peak torque is at 14. We, we can lower your peak torque down to 1,200, so if you want to run along the level at 1,200, 1, RPM, you can do so and still have response, whereas the way the truck's set right now when you're under 14, it gets a little dead. Some of those that parts have would to be custom built. Yeah, we okay. custom built a lot of for that. Okay. Is, are those kind of things... I run more through uh, your satellite shop in Kansas City. Do they do that things as well, or would it be more beneficial to come direct to your shop in Pittsburgh? Uh, you're going to have to come to our shop in Pittsburgh. Okay. Because I'm an owner-operator, which means all i got to do is say, I'd like to go here, and then that's where I can be. So just kind of uh, right. doing some planning, doing some figuring. And because I was on the listening to the a program with Mr. Rutherford the other evening, because I'm putting my soon-to-be wife through the course he's got going on there. Because I figure she's a part of the business, you know, things can be a bit more successful. 
and uh, it just kind of got me to think. It's like, okay, well, I'm just kind of putting everything down on paper, and that was one of them. So you would be very happy with the variable geometry turbo on the 12.7. And keep in mind, it lives long because it doesn't have the soot from the EGR gases going through it to lock up the fins. We're going to head off to California. Chris, welcome to the program. Good afternoon, gentlemen. See, I talked to you guys last week towards the end of the show. I sat down and specced out a new 579 Pete, and I was able to spec out 253 rears, and I was looking at the Cummins motors. What is the difference between the performance motors and the fuel-efficient X-15s? To my knowledge, the difference is one comes with like a 600 horsepower rating. The other one is a lower horsepower high torque. Uh, I always prefer the the 600. So I'd go with the performance. From what I've seen, though, I don't see a huge fuel efficiency difference. Okay, because I expected out they had a 565 option, which was like $6,000 less of the performance at 2050 torque. Um, I like that. My other question, yeah, for six grand less, I can't see the extra 40 horse. Um, No, I'd go with that one. I expect it with the 253 rears or 252s. I don't remember the exact number. And then the only transmission option I could go with at 2050 was the 18-speed. And running it in direct, I talked to the Cummins uh, district rep. He said that would work. I talked to the Eaton district rep, who supposedly at one time owned 180 trucks. He's trying to talk me out of the high torque and high horsepower and go with overdrive. And, and he's saying that that 18-speed would work if I run it 16 but their engineers are recommending me not to do it. What do I tell them to just shove it, give me what I want? We'll let's start on this after the break. All right, let's get to a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about that right after this. Stick around. Check out the website. It's letstruck.com. This is the Power Hour. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We're down to the final segment. This is the Power Hour. We're going to get right back to the calls. We were talking with Chris in California. Okay, guys, go ahead. Hey, that 252 or 253, did they tell you what your speed would be at 14 or 1500 RPM in direct gear? It was about 70 mile an hour, which is kind of where I want to run because of my e So you're saying at 
Uh, all right. So right. at seventy, what will be your RPM? About fourteen twenty-five, fourteen fifty, I believe, or fourteen thirty, something like that. What what size tire are you going to put on this? Uh, low Pro twenty two. Low Pro twenty two. Kevin, I'm a little surprised it's that much of a jump from a two sixty four. Two sixty four to what? A two fifty. Two fifty two or two fifty three. And how I'm much? Thrilled. Of, I'm thrilled to hear that Eaton has that. Yeah, I am too. How much are they saying it, it's going to? decrease the rpm it's got 70 mile an hour they're t- telling him in direct gear he's going to be at about 1430 that that sounds about right for a 250 what what do we with a 264 we're at 1475 or so at what at, at 70 at 70 Oh, I, I didn't know we were that. Uh, I thought we were higher than that. Now it it should be it, you know unless we've got a really low profile tire. Sometimes the the problem with tire size is if we when I calculate using the formula, I actually go get the actual RPM for that tire. You know, if we say it's an eleven twenty four five, that's a standard size. Low profile is really a misnomer. There's all kinds of sizes in low profile. So you've got to go look up the the tire itself, find out that the RPM is 522, and plug that into the formula. So when we say low profile, we're always guessing. I mean, we we could be off by 50 RPM just because of the tire. Okay, so... I would go with that 252 or 253, and I would go with the highest horsepower engine that I could buy. Okay. Um, and back to that Eaton rep. rep it, yeah, that, that guy that, that said he had 100 and some trucks, and Eaton wants you to run it in 18th gear versus 16th gear. Maybe that's why he doesn't have his trucking company anymore, because he doesn't <laughs> understand. But it's much more easier on a transmission not to be turning the two counter shafts and coming straight through why does the transmission temperature drop why does it get really quiet why does horsepower go up why does fuel mileage improve because there's less friction so be careful what that guy told you bruce you know i i talked about this a lot on the weekend show because i had a lot of calls people were specking new trucks and the industry is finally finally moving to direct drive transmissions but I, I, we're still missing the boat. You and I have always talked about specking a direct gear, but then having an overdrive. It, one or two. I, I really like yeah. one. I don't think we need two. But to me, and, and I know you agree with this, the ideal way to set up a truck is to run in direct and have at least one overdrive. It gives you a lot more flexibility. That's right. So even and these even these new truck. trucks, the dealers are having them spec like a 12-speed where the final gear is direct. Well, that's better, but why not throw an overdrive in there and have another gear to work with? I agree. I agree. That way you're unlimited. I, I, I like the unlimited concept. Unlimited horsepower, unlimited speed, and you drive it. 
according to what you have to do to get the job done and to get your fuel mileage. Exactly. That's how I like my truck set up. I agree. Let's uh, let's see. Let's get to another call. Let's go to Missouri. Daryl, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Hey, I got a 2001 Volvo. I'm retiring, and the engine's got two hundred or 2,500,000 on it. was overhauled at a million. It's still going good, but I'm pretty much going to retire, and I'm wondering whether... To keep it, I got another one that's got a Detroit 60 in it that's got a million plus and been overhauled at a million, so I'll probably have two engines with a million or two million on it. How much of the stuff do you you actually use when you do an out-of-frame? Boy, I got to jump in there real quick. Daryl, you are really good at taking care of engines. Did I hear that first one right? It it was rebuilt at a million, and now you have 2.5? Yes. Wow. I've been listening to you for a long time. I've been using about everything you can. I've been up to Pittsburgh Tower a couple of times. That's incredible. The the 99 to get by with the the e-log. And so now I'm going to have two Detroits sitting around. But I just don't know. If you do an out-of-frame, how much of the actual uh, block in the head do you actually use? Is it worth keeping it or... Bruce, I'll let well, you address you use that. The block and you, you use the block and you use the crank. You need the connecting rods and the pistons to exchange for the new ones. You need the head and the injectors to exchange for the rebuilds. So we need the so we need a lot of components off of it. So yes, you, you so, have to keep at least one of those. Well, the thing of it is, this is a manufactured in September of 2000, so you end up with the damn thing not being worth as much as if it was manufactured in 99, so I'm just kind of sitting there trying to figure out, well, do I keep it for parts or try to sell it? Hey, I'll trade you, and you let me in your store, I can we could just trade. How's that sound? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that... that the whole idea of a 2000 or a 99 so screwy because you know a year ago nobody would have cared now it's such a big issue although i'm waiting for them to change the wording because unless i'm missing something all of the wording on the eld is still using the vin number it there is nothing in there about engine yet and and that makes right. no sense to use the VIN number, but that's what they're doing. And until they change that, unless they change it, I think there are going to be a lot of people very surprised. Technically, right now, the gliders are not going to be exempt if they go by a VIN number. Yeah, I mean, it's just in the comments. I mean, it's not actually in the rule. They just came back with the comments saying that, you know, it right. was manufactured before 2000. Right, so I... I, They change their mind again. Yeah, I'm waiting to see the uh, official wording on that. So uh, let's let's get in one more call here before we've got to wrap this up. David in Texas, it's your turn. Go ahead. Hello, how are you guys doing today? Good. What's on your mind? Well, I'm calling about the Dorothy. Uh, I've 
done a little bit of uh, reading on it on uh, Pittsburgh's site and everything, and I wanted to get a little more information on it. Uh, just uh, you ask the questions, we'll we'll supply you yeah. with the answers. All right. Well, I have a '07 ISX. Um, would that be something beneficial for this truck here? Yes, anything from 2003 and newer. Anything, okay, okay. And uh, how often do you have to uh, clean out that that uh, container on the bottom or the pot? Thirty to <laughs> thirty to forty thousand miles. The first time we want you to look at it at thirty, and the second time at okay. forty. But if I okay. put one on mine, I'd have to look at it at ten just to see it, <laughs> and then yeah, I'd look I'm at it at twenty. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd clean it at 10, then I'd clean it at 20, then I'd clean it at 30, and then I would make my decision. It's only a 7-16 bolt and a clamp. It'd take you five minutes to change it, clean it. Okay, okay. Well, awesome. Uh, me and my buddy, we were looking at them on the, on the website the other day, and I've got this 07, and I'm actually looking at buying a 2010 uh, uh, Freightliner. And uh, we were thinking about uh, putting those on there along with the OPS. Yeah. So, it would be a very smart Alrighty. move to do that. Uh, speaking of the Dorothy Bruce, I see you guys got a write-up the other day in one of the magazines. I posted that on my Facebook page. What did it say? Uh, let me go back and look. It was... Uh, let me go find it. I've posted so many things in the last couple of days. Uh, see if I can find it before we run out of time. Oh, boy, I have been busy. Um, Call me with it. There it is. It's from uh, truckinginfo.com. It says, Dorothy Tornadic EGR Cleaner can lower emissions, increase efficiency. Truckinginfo.com. It's also on my Facebook page if you want to check it out there. We're all out of time. I've got to wrap this up and get out of here. We'll see you next time. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. I'm Kevin Rutherford.